I needed that. I came in a little tired tonight, and that's better than a five-hour energy shot. <laughs> Turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy. We finished Colossians last week, and we finished 1 Timothy on Sunday mornings um, this last Sunday. So on, Thursday, on Wednesday nights, I'm going to do 2 Timothy, and then on Sunday mornings, I'm going to go into 1 Thessalonians, so... That's the plan, a couple of good books, but I thought we'd change it up a little bit. Second Timothy is a really special book. Um, obviously, Paul wrote it to Timothy, just like First Timothy, but Second Timothy is the last book that Paul wrote before he died. And he wrote to Timothy knowing that he was in prison and that he was about to die. He was, had been sentenced to death already and knew he wouldn't live too much longer. And so you see, when, a, when someone knows they're going to die, I mean, we all know we're going to die, but we don't really believe it. But when you get that awareness that, hey, it's not much longer, it's really amazing to see what happens to your priorities. It's interesting to see what's important when you're facing death. I love being around people who have received word that they don't have long to live because I've seen God do some just amazing things in in their lives when that's the case. And it's no different with Paul here. Um, Paul was writing from prison. He was in prison in Rome. Timothy was was most likely still in Ephesus, pastoring the church in Ephesus that Paul had started, and Paul had actually been there for three years, so he knew the people in Ephesus really well, and Timothy was now pastoring that church. Paul wrote the letter to Timothy partly to give him important instructions and partly to tell him, hey, if there's any way you could come and and visit me, I'd really appreciate it. Let him know, we'll see in the last chapter, that he said, bring my warm coat, um, bring my books, um, he was still studying, still writing, and all. Probably was written in 67 AD is the best estimate. Um, the reason that we know the reason that we know that that's the latest it could be is that there's a lot of extra biblical history that says that Paul was um, ultimately killed, executed by Nero. And Nero died in June of 68 AD. Now, that would mean this would have to have been written before that. And Paul, in the the fourth chapter, says, try to come before winter. So it it would have been in summer or spring of uh, most likely 67 AD because of Nero dying Nero killed himself, committed suicide in June of 68 AD. So this was probably written in the early part of 67 AD, which would place it as the last of Paul's epistles. Um, A lot of important stuff in it and a lot of bottom line stuff. And so I've always really enjoyed this book. Let's dive right into it. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul would start his letters this way generally, saw, recognizing that he was someone who was sent by God, by Jesus Christ, and it was according to God's will that he was doing what he was doing. He didn't take it upon himself. He didn't decide, when I grow up, I'm going to be an apostle. It was something that God just put on him and called him to, and it was by the will of God according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. That's a, a, a unique thing that he uses here in 2 Timothy. The idea of it being according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Um, Jesus Christ is the one who gives us life. He's also the one who gives us a promise of everlasting life. And now as Paul's life is coming to a close, he's more aware than ever of the fact that the one who had saved him 
was also the one who had his future guaranteed. And so um, that's how he opens the book. To Timothy, a beloved son. Paul, in several places, calls people his son. In 1 Timothy, he called Timothy his son in the faith, and here he calls him a beloved son. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace is the really the hallmark of Paul's ministry. He was always trying to explain that what you get from God, you get for free. What you get for God, you can't earn. It doesn't come because you're good enough. It's not about conforming your life in such a way that you're able to become a better person and follow the rules a little better. It's simply grace. And mercy goes along with grace often. Mercy means that he doesn't give you what you really deserve. Grace gives you what you don't deserve. Mercy saves you from what you really do deserve. And the ultimate result always of grace and mercy ought to be peace. In fact, it's very clear, if you don't have peace, then you need to get back to understanding grace and mercy a bit more. Sometimes we forget what we would be and where we would be without Jesus Christ. And sometimes we, because we miss the message of grace so often, grace is, is an interesting concept because almost everyone in Christianity professes to believe in grace. I mean, it's not controversial to teach that it's all about grace, that salvation is by grace. What gets controversial and what becomes problematic is when you actually, you know, propose living by grace. And what's really a rarity isn't Christians who believe in grace, it's Christians who actually will show grace. How do we treat others comes back to ultimately what we believe about grace. And if we treat others in a conditional way, if we love conditionally, if we demand certain things from them in order for us to have a relationship with them, it just shows that we don't get grace. Now, when you live an ungracious lifestyle, when you live a lifestyle that's judgmental, when you live a lifestyle that's striving really hard or that, that doesn't allow others to fail, um, you won't have peace. It, it just doesn't happen. The pathway to peace, the peace of God and peace with God, runs through grace always. And so whenever you're in turmoil, back up a little bit, remind yourself of grace. Remind yourself of what that really means. And when you're constantly at odds with those around you, good time also to consider, am I living in grace? I'm counting on grace to get me to heaven, but am I actually showing the kind of grace that the Bible says I'm supposed to, the kind of grace that actually God has shown to me? But it's beautiful when you begin to understand grace, really understand it enough that it changes your life, and you receive mercy, and therefore you're able to show mercy. You, you're able to deal with people's frailties and failures with mercy. What exudes from your life is grace and mercy. That's very rare, but that will bring peace. Peace in your heart, peace with others as well. And so whenever we're lacking peace, it's a good time to look at grace, mercy, and peace and see what went wrong, where we've come up short. And again, it comes from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. If Jesus wasn't God, it would be really blasphemous to act as if, and in so many ways in the Scriptures, where God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are put side by side. Grace, who does it come from? Mercy, who does it come from? Peace, who does it come from? It comes from the Father and the Son, both. You don't get it just from one, just from the other, because they are both God. 
And that's the only way you could ever come to that conclusion. I couldn't explain it any other way. And now, as so often in his prayers, he, in his books, he goes into a prayer a little bit, and he says, Timothy, I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day. He says, I serve God with a pure conscience. That doesn't mean that Paul saw himself as pure. His conscience was pure. When your conscience isn't pure is when you're not facing up to your own frailty, to your own sin, call it what it is. When you're dishonest about your sin, then your conscience gets clogged up. Your system just doesn't flow smoothly. It's things go wrong when we don't confess our sin. When we confess our sin, as John says in 1 John chapter 1, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The pure conscience comes when I admit who I am and what I've done. And confession, the word confess, means to say the same thing or just to agree. For all of us, it's not important for us to to go down the list and to say how sorry we are and to weep for months over our sin and to feel really bad. See, that's kind of the way that we want people to, to act. We're usually not willing to forgive someone until they really grovel for a while. It's like if someone is too quick to say, oh, sorry, my bad, we're like, eh, I don't think you're really repentant. I want to see you crawl. I want to see you suffer a bit. The Bible never says that. It's never there. It's simply admitting what's obvious, admitting the reality of the situation, and our sins are forgiven as a result of us agreeing. But our conscience is that which lets us know something's wrong. We do something, and we may not even have a verse to really nail it down, but we just go, that didn't feel quite right. And so it's just saying, God, I think I just blew it. I think you, you caused me to feel like that wasn't quite right, and, and so I'm going to back off of that one. When it's really working properly, the word gets to you before you do a lot of damage. You start to say something, and you know it's just not quite right. You start to do something and you're going, I can justify this. There's a good reason for me to say this or to do this, but I'm not feeling really good about it. Your conscience just speaking to you and just saying something's not right here. Now, you had a conscience even before you became a Christian. You were called spiritually dead, but the scriptures talk about how everyone's conscience is revealing to them something about God. And so even before you came to Christ, there were times when you just felt like this just doesn't feel quite right. This just, there's something wrong here. And that was just the, the beginnings of your conscience just saying, yeah, this isn't smooth. It's a lack of peace. That grace and mercy and peace... You can't have that if you're lugging around a conscience, a guilty conscience. One way that people show a guilty conscience when their conscience isn't clean is when they're defensive. If you just question something and they snap at you, what? You know, it's like that's one of, to me, one of the greatest signs of a guilty conscience, of a dirty conscience, is when somebody's really sensitive. When someone gets irritated easily, when someone is snapping at others, when I find myself doing that, I, I try to back up a little bit and get some perspective and go, is there something in here that's just not right? Now, confessing our sins, I think, is something that the institutional church over the centuries um, clouded up by making it a 
a deal where you have to go to a priest or to a pastor, depending on your denomination, and confess your sins. But, you know, if you grew up in that tradition, you know that it did help. I mean, it made you, it made you feel better in a sense. And maybe, and, it, and in, in the worst traditions, it gives you something that you can do to compensate for your sins. To, you know, but, but it's getting it off your chest. The Bible does say that we should confess our sins one to another. And sometimes it's good you don't have to go to a pastor or a priest. Sometimes it's good just to, with someone you're close to, someone who knows you well, um, and maybe not someone who's too close to you, someone that you have a good friendship with, but like if it's, it, it, to, to confess to someone that you live with isn't always the best thing to do because then you have to live with them while they work through it. But to find someone a little further away that you can open up to and share with is often a conscience-clearing sort of thing. And it's not a bad thing. It's not that God forgives you because you do that. It's that you will walk in his forgiveness when you can completely get it off your chest. We have no idea of how much stress we bring into our lives. We have no idea of how much pressure we put on ourselves, how much pain we endure, because we don't allow our consciences to be cleansed. The word here for, you know, as he says, it's a pure conscience. It's the same word um, for uh, the Greek word catharsis, which means to cleanse but also to heal. We use the word cathartic in a way that we say if something is cathartic, it means that it has a healing effect. And it's the same sort of thing. And Paul's saying, you know what? My conscience is pure because it's been healed, because I admit my sins. And Paul's smart. He, he's the kind of guy who would come forward and say, look, I'm the chief of sinners, okay? So anything you want to accuse me of, yeah, I did that or worse. And it's not a bad way to live. With a conscience, a, con- a constant awareness in your conscience that, man, I'm guilty of a lot of stuff. And if somebody's going to accuse me of something, don't really need to defend myself a whole lot because even if I didn't do that, I've done things worse. And so a pure conscience comes from being honest about your sin. Now, it doesn't mean every single sin that you commit that you consciously confess because the truth is most of the sins that you commit you don't even realize that you've committed them. You, you'll go to your grave thinking you were right when you were really wrong. But it's a heart that, set, that acknowledges, you know, if, I know, if I'm feeling not good about something, I'm going to admit it. I'm going to back off anytime God convicts me of something and I see it, and I live my life with a constant acknowledgement of my own failure in the flesh my own need for grace, my own desire to be forgiven by God. And so Paul self-identifies as someone who has come clean and who does that often. And so even in his thanking God, he says, I serve him. And the word there for serve isn't the normal word serve, like to wait on someone. It's a word that's often um, translated worship, so it's a spiritual sort of service to God, um, whom I served with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did. It's kind of neat that Paul, although he was a part of what was essentially a completely new understanding of God, that is Christianity. It started when Jesus rose from the dead, but it built on a foundation of Judaism and so Paul could acknowledge that even though his forefathers didn't completely understand that which had been revealed to him, and it's why Paul often called it a mystery, yet he's acknowledging, I didn't make this up. I'm building on what I am a product of. And I think it's so important that when we're thanking God that we keep in mind our forefathers, those who came before us, those who paved the way, men like Paul, 
others, ministers throughout history, people who have ministered to us from when we were small, from the first time we heard the gospel, guys who, who have faithfully walked with God and proven as an example to us to identify with them and not to just reinvent the wheel and think that this is just about me and God. No, this is about God having worked throughout history from the very creation of the world and in the same way that our forefathers, even going way back to men like Abraham, in the same way that they worshiped God in spirit and in truth, they are our fathers spiritually. And then ever since the church was founded on the day of Pentecost, the long progression of people who have participated with us in this faith, it's, it's good to thank God for them and to acknowledge it. I think so often we're very critical of those in church history. And we look at them and we see them as being those who are wrong. And, and pretty much throughout church history, you can find people who were wrong throughout church history. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. I mean, men like Martin Luther, who, who accomplished amazing things, who really brought attention to the nature of the Scriptures and the importance of putting Scripture first and um, his understanding of the just shall live by faith. Um, boy, we are all indebted to Martin Luther. But Martin Luther was um, very anti-Semitic, had all sorts of other problems, had some other weird beliefs, as have so many people throughout church history. See, the amazing thing is that God has used all of those people throughout history. If you grew up, for instance, in the Catholic Church, a lot of people I know who convert to a relationship with Jesus Christ out of the Catholic Church, they become like Catholic haters. They just become like, a, they're so bitter against Catholics. And, and they come upon that honestly because they see the abuse, and you're obviously more sensitive to it if you grew up in it and you witnessed it, and you see some of the things that are going on around the world in the name of Christianity um, somewhat within the Catholic Church. Um, and so I understand how that happens, but at the same time, if you began to learn about the Word of God, if you began to learn about Jesus, if you don't have a problem with the virgin birth, for instance, because that was drummed into you in catechism, you should be thankful. I mean, and within whatever God used to bring you to where you are today, there are people that he used who are, in a sense, your forefathers. In the same way that Paul could have bagged on the Old Testament saints for not getting it about Jesus, he could have lashed out at the Jews of the day for being so heathen and so rejecting of Jesus Christ. You never see that with Paul. Remember over in Romans, he said, man, I look at my fellow Jews who don't know Jesus, and he said, I would give up my own salvation if they could get saved. That comes from someone who appreciates their roots. And I think we should appreciate ours. Obviously, we are where we are right now because God has brought us to this point. And to me, I think here, Calvary Chapel, Pacific Hills, this is the pinnacle. But, just kidding. But, <laughs> but everything you've ever been through in your life, God used to bring you where you are today with the Lord. And he will use other people who are flawed to bring you where he wants to take you. And, and I think it's important, as, as Paul did, for us to just realize that we are a product of God working in our lives over centuries. And let's appreciate where he has taken us, and let's not just sit and turn around and take shots at everyone before us. We can... It, it, it happens a lot in Christianity that we cut off our very foundation. 
Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he has been building his church for 2,000 years. And he knows what he's doing. And so I'm thankful for the understanding that I have of his word and of his grace. But I also realize that there are some ways in which I wouldn't even understand that had I not done some years in a legalistic system. Or had I not been someone who totally didn't understand that. Sometimes you need to have the background set so you can see the contrast of that which God really wants you to see. And so Paul said, I'm serving with a pure conscience as my forefathers did. I'm doing the best I can and they were doing the best they could. They did what they knew. As without ceasing... I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. Paul probably remembered leaving Ephesus after three years. And you remember in the book of Acts where he gave that speech to the Ephesian elders. And it was a very difficult parting as God was calling him to leave Ephesus. And Timothy would have been there shaking in his boots as this kid who now has to take over pastoring a church after someone like Paul. No doubt about it, Timothy was crying on that occasion. And Paul says, man, I remember seeing you cry. I remember that, and and I just want to see you again so that we can rejoice, so that we can celebrate. And I love that he's obviously praying for Timothy day and night, unceasingly. But his prayer is constantly infused with a thanksgiving for what God had done. If God could just make us more thankful and appreciative. Thankfulness comes from people who see what God is doing, who see what God is doing when other people can't, when on the surface maybe things look bleak, and yet with the eyes of faith, You realize God is working enough that you can thank him, as Paul said, in everything and for everything. Just being thankful people. And so he goes, man, Timothy, I I miss you. Uh, I greatly desire to see you. I'll never forget seeing you cry, as no doubt Paul cried too. I want to be filled with joy. But he said, I'm really thankful when I call to remembrance the genuine faith. The genuine, the word for genuine there in the Greek is the, the word um, that we get hypocritical from, but it has the prefix of an, which is not hypocritical. So he says, your faith isn't faking it. It's real. He goes on later in the chapter to talk about some people who he felt apparently had faked it. They're always going to be hypocrites in the church. There are people who say, yeah, I don't go to the church because it's so full of hypocrites. Well, there's always room for one more. (laughs) But Paul said, I saw your faith, and I knew you meant it. I knew it was real, and I'm thankful for that. The genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and I'm persuaded it's in you also. Again, following through on his thoughts about the forefathers. And he says, it's not just forefathers, it's foremothers. He said, I saw that genuine faith in your grandma. The word um, that's translated grandmother here is the Greek word mama. Um, And then the the Greek word for mother is the word mater, from which we get mother. Mama was originally... A in older Greek was a word that would be spoken of your mother, just like we would use mama, mommy. Um, but it later in later Greek, it developed that you would call your grandmother mama and you would call your mom mother. And so he's using those and talking about these two godly ladies who laid that foundation. None of us had parents who did it all right. But if you had parents, as I did, who delivered the word of God, who took me to church, who, who prayed for me, who 
who put those spiritual values high, you've got to appreciate that. Because again, those are the, the seeds that are planted that end up growing up into who you are today. Now, some of you might go, my parents weren't Christians, my grandparents weren't Christians, I come from a, a long line of pagans. But I would bet you there was someone, maybe a neighbor, maybe a friend, maybe an aunt or an uncle, I'd be really shocked if there wasn't someone back there who was praying for you and, and holding you up before the Lord. Most of you know who that person was. It just jumps right into your head. Some of you don't. I'm sure they were there. And Paul here was just saying, appreciate that, Timothy, by saying, Timothy, you have the same faith that your mom and your grandma had. Obviously, Timothy had it in a, in a greater way than they did. He's, he was pastoring a church. But Paul was honoring the fact that they had that input into him and raised him. Timothy probably didn't have a dad in the home. If he had a dad, his um, dad probably wasn't a Christian because there's no mention of his father at all. And the very fact that Paul would call himself Timothy's father would tend to indicate that he probably didn't have one, at least not a great example of one. And, and so um, it, it reminds us of the importance of praying for the younger generation, especially praying for the kids who are maybe growing up in broken homes or growing up in difficult circumstances. I remember a, a family years ago at Calvary Costa Mesa who used to take in foster children. And they would take in foster babies. And that was, I can't even imagine, because they would take in a little baby, get so attached to them for a couple months, and then social services would find a family to adopt them, and they would have to give them up. And I talked to them one time, and I said, how, how can you do it? And I knew how close they were to these babies because they would always bring the babies to dedicate them to the Lord at the church. And so you'd see them up there practically every Sunday with another baby getting it dedicated. And they said, you know, we don't know what's going to happen to these kids, but we know that while they're with us, we're praying for them constantly. And we keep their pictures and we pray for all of our little kids that we had. And they've all been dedicated to the Lord. So they got up in front of the church and a couple thousand people prayed for them. They said, that has to make a difference. And I thought, you know, those people, as hard as that is, and that calling isn't for everyone, but to be able to have that influence spiritually in hundreds of kids is in some ways so much more significant even than <coughs> pouring your whole life into raising a couple of them. Plus, you get rid of them while they're still cute. But, <laughs> but Paul is just thankful for that heritage that Timothy had. And he says, uh, Therefore, I remind you, on the basis of what I've been praying for you and what I'm thankful for you and thinking about what brought you where you are today, he said, I need to remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. To stir up, the King James translates this word to stir up. Um, some of the more modern translations um, translate it like the ESV, I think, says fan into flames. Probably a better translation. Um, when you have a fire that's about to go out, you move it around and stir it up in order to get the flames there. And at the same time, you might fan it or blow on it. Uh, if you've ever seen Survivor, you know what a big deal this is. And Paul's using that metaphor and saying, you have a gift. And he's referring specifically to Timothy's calling as a pastor. Because when he was ordained, uh, when his ordination was recognized, and Paul and the elders laid hands on him, he's saying, remember that. We all acknowledged this is your gift. 
But just because you have a gift, that's not enough. You don't just use your gift. or You don't just let it lie dormant. There are things that you need to do to keep the fire going in that which God has called you to do in the gift that you have. Because even though the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, they can certainly lie really dormant and even seem to blow out completely if we don't maintain the gift that God has given us, the calling that he has given us. And that means whatever God has called us to do, we should be doing everything that we can do to be better at it, to equip ourselves more, to be more effective, to find other ways to use our gifts. A lot of that is simply using the gift that God has given you. But sometimes, for some people, it means taking a break from a ministry to go get some more education so that they can have a little more ability to use the gifts that God has given them. Other times it just means to practice. Sometimes it means to watch other people who have your gift and see how they do it. I, I don't ever want to get to the point where I just think I kind of have it down. There are always, and you know, I've been involved in ministry since the early 70s. And yet, every week I read books, I listen to podcasts, I, I go to seminars when I have a chance, because I want to get better at what I do. And that's really important. And Paul's letting Timothy know that. Don't, you know, sometimes teachers take an attitude that, I know more than the students, so I can teach. Teachers I admire are teachers who are students themselves, who are constantly learning, constantly stretching themselves. In fact, you can never really be a good teacher if you're not doing that. And so Paul's reminding Timothy, man, we laid hands on you to acknowledge that you have a real gift, but you need to fan that flame. You need to keep that fire hot. You need to stoke those coals so that you will constantly, and as he said in 1 Timothy, so that people, everyone can see your progress, see that you're getting better at what you're doing, see that you're putting out an effort to get more proficient at what God has called you to do. And so he's saying this, reminding him, and this is obviously something that Paul has been praying for Timothy as well. And then Following that up says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear. The word there isn't the Greek word phobos, which is the normal word for fear. It's a word delia, which means fear, but it's, it, it could perhaps be better translated as timidity. Um, it's somebody who's just kind of like, it's more like stage fright or like, well, I don't want to exert myself. I'm I don't want to speak up. I don't. It's just that, that false humility that causes us to keep our gift on the shelf. And he says, God hasn't given us that, but he has given us power and love and a spirit of a sound mind. Now you might go, well, if God has given us a sound mind, how come there's so many crazy Christians out there? Well... The word here doesn't really mean a sound mind um, because most of us are crazy um, one way or another. But the, a better translation of that word is actually um, discipline or self-control. Now, you can see why they would translate it a sound mind because, but the idea isn't sound mind as opposed to being out of your mind. It's the idea of a sound solid mind as being one that has it together. And, and it's really more a life that has it together. And so he's saying, in contrast, instead of being timid, make sure that you know that God has given you a spirit of power. Jesus had said to the disciples, but you, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power Dunamis, after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be witnesses unto me. He said, all power has been given unto me in heaven 
and in earth. And so he has left us with the power of the Holy Spirit, and he said, hey, there's no reason why you need to be all shy about doing what God calls you to do or shy about saying what God tells you to say because God has given us the Holy Spirit and his power, and he wants to use that. But he's also given us a spirit of love. Power and love together often don't mix. There are a lot of people who are really bold and powerful. They'll tell you what they think, and they'll go, you know, God hasn't given us a spirit of timidity, but power. Power and love. And it takes a whole different category of person to have the power of God working in your life and the love in order to get away with it. There are some people who can tell you anything because they are so loving, you know they love you, you don't have a question about that. And as a result, you will allow them to stick their nose into your life because you already know how they feel about you. Um, to be lo loving without that power doesn't do a lot of good either. That's why the Bible talks about speaking the truth in love. <laughs> you need both. We desperately need people who can be honest with us, but they need to be loving people or else it just doesn't work. God has given you. If you're a child of God, you have that spirit of power and you have that spirit of love. It's in there. You just have to allow it to flow forth, to come through you. And then again, thirdly, the, the discipline, the self-control, the sound mind, having it together. It's amazing how many times the scriptures talk about how important it is for us to have self-control, especially in the context of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. Now, we tend to think of the Holy Spirit as being, oh, that's giving up my control and letting Him control me. Yes, but when He controls you, you control yourself. You take what He has given you and you line your ducks up in a row and you put discipline into your life. You will never be able to live a healthy Christian life unless you have some discipline in your life. The Christian life is not for flakes. You can't just fall back on grace and be lazy and undisciplined. The Christian life should be a life that's full of grace, but at the same time, within the parameters of that grace, we ought to be able to plan, we ought to be efficient, we should be responsible, I mean, these are all things that are a part of us being who God wants us to be. And you cannot even pretend biblically to be filled with the Spirit if you're not all of those things, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. And I think that's the one that we miss the most. Because it's funny, when you take the last one, and you put it first, it's amazing what happens with all of the other things. See, you have power, but unless you learn to use that power, what good's it going to do you? Um, you can be, you may be a person who can go approach anyone and talk to them about the Lord and just come up to them and say, Do you know that Jesus loves you? And if you have that kind of strength, hey, that's awesome but I hope you've also done your homework because usually the response to Jesus loves you is not, can I pray a prayer after you and, and become a Christian? People have questions. How do you learn how to deal with those questions? You do your homework. You study to show yourself approved to God. That's a part of the responsibility of a Christian. And so power without self-control is just, you know, um, it's like trying to use a shotgun when you need a sniper rifle. With a sniper rifle, you can have incredible range if you have the right bullet and the right barrel that's tailored and the right sights so that you can just put it on a dime. 
A shotgun just shows, throws a blast out there. It doesn't go very far. It'll do its damage in the right situation close up. But uh, when you need precision, you generally don't use a shotgun. And it's the same thing with what God calls us to. Usually the shotgun approach isn't the most effective. He calls for surgical strikes. He calls for precision. And that's where the real power lies, is in the ability to use the right weapon at the right time, in the right way, to know, not only to have the courage to say something, but to have the discipline to know what to say and what not to say as well. A lot of people who are very bold for Jesus do a whole lot of damage for Jesus by just being blunderbuss or just screaming in people's ears or beating them over the head with a bullhorn. Um, That's power. Might even be love, but it's not a disciplined approach. It's really not a sound mind. Power, love. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, the love is there. But you'll never be able to show your love until you learn discipline. Discipline is what, like, you can sit there and you can have a thousand people that you really care about. But until you organize your life in such a way that you create a few extra minutes to call some of those people or to email them or to go out of your way to have lunch with them, if you can never do that kind of stuff because you just don't have the discipline in your life to make it happen, then how do people know that you're loving? The discipline sets love free, gives it a channel to operate gives the power of God a channel to operate. And so he's just letting Timothy know this formula. Hey, don't be timid, but you've got power, you've got love, and you've got discipline. And you put those three together, you'll be using that gift. You'll be stirring up that gift. Huge things can happen for you. So really important couple verses there that you might want to underline. Therefore, on the basis of that, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Several times, Paul warns Timothy about not being too shy. So he probably was kind of, you know, cautious, was kind of reserved. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Don't be afraid that if you do what God tells you to do, it might hurt. It might be difficult. Somebody might laugh at you. Someone may put you down or make fun of you. He goes, don't be ashamed. Don't let that stuff scare you. Now, we'll see later that a whole lot of people had kind of turned on Paul by this time. And he knew, if you do what God calls you to do, some people will turn on you. You will always... Find out who your friends are, and more than that, who they aren't. When you have to do something that God tells you to do that they don't want you to do. As long as you're doing what they want you to do, you don't know if they really are your friends or not. But Paul had difficult things that he had to do that people disagreed with, and as a result, he lost a whole lot of friends and suffered a lot of mistreatment as well. But he, but he says to Timothy, Don't be afraid of that. You're in good company. You're with me. Some of that's going to happen, but don't be ashamed. Don't let negative consequences keep you from doing what God is calling you to do. According to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. He said, remember, we're saved by grace, not by what we do, not by works. We have a holy calling. That is, we are called to holiness. Yeah, God wants to make us more holy. There's no doubt about it. That's his agenda for us. But it doesn't happen by us doing it. It happens by his grace. And then he talks about the fact that God has called us But not only that, even more so, it was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. 
It was his purpose, it was his grace, it was his calling. I don't completely understand this, but Paul's point in bringing this up, as, as he brings it up several times, is that God's plan for you started before you existed, before anything existed. Now, I don't understand that, but because I can't even fathom something that was before time. I can understand it intellectually a little bit, but I can't really feel it. I can't really sense it. But, you know, I can, I can just make myself crazy trying to figure out God calling me before I existed. Because I'm not eternal, but he always knew all about me, and he called me and had a plan for me. And I'm not going to understand it, and I won't argue about it, but I'm going to believe it, and I love it. Can't put all the pieces together yet. In heaven, I will. But at this point, I'm just going to go, it's amazing to me. And, and it's a reminder of grace, because what possible good could I have ever done before I ever existed, <laughs> before time even existed? And again, Paul's using it to illustrate the fact that it's all his grace, it's not our works. It's why I think it's, it's um, a theological error to simplify God's um, knowing and choosing us before the foundation of the world by simply saying, God looked through history and he saw what we would do and he saw that we would accept him and therefore he chose us on the basis of our choice of him. Um, that's generally the Arminian position of divine election. And I, I can't accept that. Um, it makes sense, just like the Calvinistic position makes sense, and I don't accept that either. But here he is definitely saying, as proof of, your, of God's grace, it had nothing to do with what you did. It had nothing to do with your work. So I just accept that. And remember the reason he's saying this to Timothy is for Timothy to understand this incredible nature of the eternal plan that God has for his life. And, and so I'll go with that. His purpose, his grace, it's all for free. He saved us for free. And it's now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. By the way, it was the power of God who saved us. And who's our Savior? <laughs> Jesus Christ in the very next verse. Jesus is God, in case you haven't noticed that by now, reading the Bible. Revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. He said, I'm wearing a few hats. I'm a preacher. I'm someone who's declaring the good news or an evangelist, we might say. I'm an apostle. I was sent to plant churches and to, and to write scripture and to build the foundation of what God's doing in the church. And I'm also a teacher of the Gentiles. I explain how this whole thing goes down. And he says, he appointed me that according to his gospel of grace. Verse 12, for this reason I also suffer these things. That's why I'm in prison. That's why I go through what I'm going through. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Paul said, I'm not ashamed. Even though I understand that I am hurting big time because of what I'm called to do, I don't have a problem with that. I don't hesitate to share the gospel where God opens the door. Because he says, not I know what I have believed. It's not about knowing what you believe. The demons know all kinds of information. It's not about doctrine. It's I know whom I have believed. And there was that great uh, hymn of the faith. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded 
that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. What a great song that is. I love it. And, and it comes from the scripture. Paul says, because I know him, I am not ashamed. I have no problem suffering. The suffering is nothing to me compared to knowing him. That's why over in Philippians, remember Paul said, everything I had, everything I was, I count it all but sewage compared to knowing Christ. When you know him, you can never be ashamed of him. You can know about him and be embarrassed, but the more you get to know him, and as Paul says, and I know whom I have believed, and he says, I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. I have committed it to him. Now, the word there for commit is a word that refers to a bank deposit. Everything that I've done, he says, I am depositing it with him. I'll do what he calls me to do, and it's deposited. And I'm going to believe that that is going to pay off in huge dividends for eternity. Whatever I give to God is he will be a debtor to no man. And so he says, it's because every time I do something for him, I'm making a deposit in the bank of heaven. I'm, I'm putting that together. It's the word paratithemi. Para means alongside, paired with. And tithemi means to place. Remember on Sunday I said tithemi means place, as in thesis means to place it down. Antithesis, the opposite of what you place down. This is placed alongside. And you're saying, I've laid it with him. <laughs> Whatever happens to me is his problem. And the reason that's not a problem for me is because I know him. I know whom I have believed. I have bet everything on him because I know him. And I know that he will make it worthwhile. And so he says, Timothy, hold fast. The pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. In faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Oh, by the way, I should have said in verse 12 too, he says, I've committed to him until that day. That day is when everything is culminated. So he says, so Timothy, hang on to this good advice, the pattern of sound words. You've, you've seen me preach. I just preach the word. I just declare the truth. Do the same thing. Faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And then he says, that good thing which was committed to you Keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. This word for committed is a different form of the earlier word. Remember I said paratithemi was the other word, to place alongside. Well, this is, is it's paratithemi, but inserted in it is the word kata, which in the Greek means down. So if the first committed means means to be placed alongside. This committed means to be placed down alongside. It, it intensifies the deposit that has been made. And, and so the idea of it is you have made a deposit because you've taken yourself and everything that you have and everything that you are, and you say, I'm putting this in the bank of heaven. I'm trusting this to God. And he says, God deposited something in you, and it came from heaven and was deposited kata, down, alongside you. And that is the ministry that he has called you to, the gospel that he has entrusted to you. And so he says, it's a good thing, and it was committed, it was paid down alongside you. Keep it by the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Do this in the Spirit. Do your ministry. This you know, that all those in Asia have turned away from me. When the New Testament refers to Asia, it's referring to what was the Greek or the Roman province of Asia, which is what we, well, it's today it's mostly in Turkey. Um, we would tend to historically call it Asia Minor. It's where most of the churches are that Paul um, taught in, including Ephesus, 
Um, Ephesus was the, became the capital of the province of Asia Minor, of Asia. And the, all the churches in the book of Revelation are, uh, you know, Laodicea, Colossae, all, all these churches that we know about are all from that area. And Paul is now just opening up and, and saying, you know, all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. We don't know anything about these guys. They're not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. But Timothy obviously knew who they were, so perhaps they were from Ephesus. But Paul is saying, man, I have done so much. And you know what? Just about everybody has bailed on me. Now, obviously, everyone hadn't because Timothy was in Asia. It must have made Timothy feel a little weird when Paul goes, everybody in Asia has, has deserted me. Now, Timothy is probably feeling really guilty because Paul is trying to get him to come to Rome. But Paul felt like a lot of people had turned on him as a result of the fact that he wasn't the popular hip thing anymore. Probably once he got arrested the, the last time and, and put in prison in Rome and everyone knew he was going to die, people forgot about him. They moved on. They got over it. And Paul could feel that. He could tell by who would support him financially, by who would come and visit him there in prison in Rome. And so he's just kind of saying, man, these guys, they were my friends, and they bailed on me. He says, not everyone. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. So Onesiphorus did come to Rome, and it wasn't easy to find a prisoner in those days. And so he went from dungeon to dungeon to dungeon until he found him, and then he comforted him and encouraged him. And he said, man, I, I just pray that his whole family will be blessed because he really blessed me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day, when it's all said and done, when it all comes down. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. So Onesiphorus was probably from Ephesus, ministered to Paul there, later made that trek, made that journey to come to Rome. Um, this is a, a good reminder to us of how important it is to stay in contact with people who don't get constant contact. Because you're, you can be there serving the Lord. God can be doing something good. But, man, do you need to hear from home? Is it, It's so special to have someone who will actually go to the trouble of coming and visiting you. I've heard this often, and I, and I, and I really try to take this to heart, that although for me to go travel to another country where there are pastors or missionaries that we know and... Um, it always feels like kind of a waste because you go there and you can't speak the language and they, you know, they want you to speak and use an interpreter and it's like you feel so useless. Sometimes we've gone on missions trips and you think, okay, yeah, we'll do a little project. We'll build a wall. And they could build walls way better than we can. But here's the thing. What it says when someone will come from a long ways away who's your brother or sister in the Lord and they'll just come and sit with you and be with you and pray with you and let you know that they care about you, it means a huge amount of difference. It really does make an impact. And I, I would encourage you to look at the board back there where we have all the missionaries. And if you've been thinking about traveling, pray about traveling to one of those places and just connecting with the person. It doesn't matter that they don't know you or even if you've never met them, they're always thrilled to have somebody show up from home. As much as Paul said, man, when Onesiphorus did that, it kind of made up for all the other people who have neglected me. And it just was a breath of fresh air. And I would challenge all of us to keep that in mind and to keep it in prayer. Don't do it unless God tells you to do it. Um, because... Sometimes people will go just bug missionaries. <laughs> but if God calls you to do it, 
Think outside the box as to what God might be calling you to do. And you might be that Onesiphorus. You might be that one who can make all the difference for someone who's, who's stuck somewhere, who's in a place where um, they feel a long ways from home. And um, so, again, just a thought. You can see Paul's heart in this. And, of course, his whole pitch to Timothy is, man, don't be ashamed. You've got the gospel. You have a ministry. Do it the best that you can. Do it with all your heart. Do it in a way that, um, that will build treasures and rewards in the bank of heaven. God has deposited in your account down here. You make sure that you're depositing in his account up there. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word and for just giving us this chance to see into Paul's heart. What an amazing guy he was. And the relationship that he had with Timothy and just the, it's sad to see a guy like Paul who, after accomplishing so much when it was all winding down, he didn't see a lot of the fruit that was left. Looked to him like most of it had been for naught, but he knew why he did it. He did it for you. He had no idea about us. Paul had no clue as to how many people would read this book of 2 Timothy over the next couple thousand years. And Lord, I pray that we will be faithful in what you've called us to do, and we will trust you for the fruitfulness of our efforts. But we want to do what you've called us to do. We want to do it the best we can. We want to stir up that fire that you've placed within us and take what you've deposited in our account, and we want to make significant deposits in yours. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.